just want to start by saying I love my dog. <laughs> and the reason I say that up front is because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say about my dog, especially those of you who are dog lovers. Uh, my dog can be so annoying. You know, I come home from work, and I'm carrying a backpack, a laptop, if I've been working out, a gym bag, and she jumps all over me, and I say, down, Zoe, down. And she doesn't go down. She doesn't listen. She continues to jump. You know, when somebody walks by the front of our house, anybody passes on the sidewalk, she begins to bark. It's usually when our, our granddaughter is trying to take a nap, and I say, quiet, Zoe, quiet. But she doesn't quiet. She barks louder. My, my dog loves to lick, and we have guests come over, and I say, Zoe, stop that. Stop, stop licking. Stop, 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 stop. And she just continues to smooch whoever's come through the door, right? My, my dog, when she comes and begs at the table, and I say, go lie down, she continues to beg, and she drools out of the corner of her mouth while she's doing it, looking up at you. We go for a walk in the woods. A squirrel goes by, a rabbit, a deer. She takes off. I say, come back, Zoe, come back. And she just accelerates in the opposite direction. You know, one time she chased a deer. It took me two hours in the woods to find my dog. I thought she had been adopted by the deer family. You know? My dog doesn't listen. And, and I know what you dog lovers are, th are thinking. You're thinking, well, you haven't taught her to obey. See, there's this thing called obedience training. And I get it, and you're right. Because the, the last dog I had, I raised from a pup, and we immediately went to obedience school, and we got the obedience thing down. But Zoe, we adopted from a rescue shelter. She was three or four years old, and I didn't think it was necessary. Was I wrong? Never taught her obedience. And we're going to talk about obedience today, because it's not only a winsome character trait for a dog, it is a winsome character trait and an absolute must for a follower of Jesus Christ. Obedience. Christ followers live in a hostile world. It's a world that's opposed to Jesus' values and priorities and morals. And the, the only way to resist this world's influences, the only way to have a positive impact upon our world is to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. We're, we're in the second week of a seven-part series called Dinner in a Hostile World. Uh, we are studying four chapters, walking through four chapters in the Gospel of John. John 14, 15, 16, and 17. If you brought a Bible, and I hope you did, I hope you'll mark up your Bible as we go through this series. Turn to John chapter 14. Okay, these four chapters are a summary of what Jesus taught his disciples at the Last Supper. He was teaching this close group of followers not only how to survive, but how to thrive in a hostile world. And the key concept that we're going to be looking at in the second half of John 14 today is obedience. Obedience. If you got your Bible open to John 14, uh, we're going to begin at verse 15, but instead of me uh, reading through the entire passage, I I'd like to do a brief flyby because I want you to see this, this concept of obedience as it pops up again and again and again. One of the principles of Bible study that I've taught you in the past is if you want to know what the major theme of a passage is, whatever passage you're reading, look for repeating words or ideas. They're a dead giveaway. So I want you to see the repeating idea of obedience as it pops up in the text we're, we're about to look at. I'm just going to note a few phrases here. Verse 15, first verse that we're going to look at, middle of the verse, keep my commands. See that? 
Now, if you've got your own Bible, you want to underline that. If you've got an electronic Bible, you want to highlight it. Then drop down to verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them. So all I, all I want you to note, has my commands and keeps them. Verse 23, middle of the verse, obey my teaching. It's Jesus speaking, obey my teaching. Middle of verse 24, he speaks of anyone who will not obey my teaching. Underline, obey my teaching, obey my teaching. Drop down to the last verse in the passage, verse 31. Second half of the verse, Jesus says, I love the Father. I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Underline, do exactly what my Father has commanded me. See, the main emphasis of Jesus' teaching here is obvious. Obedience. It's important to obey Christ as Christ obeys the Father. Today we're going to learn three essential truths about obedience. So if you haven't taken your outline out yet, take it out, jot these down. Three important truths about obedience. Truth number one, obedience is the evidence of love. Obedience is the evidence, we're speaking of our love for God now, is the evidence of our love for God. How many of you have ever read Dr. Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages? Anybody? Okay, a lot of you have. The book's been around for forever. Uh, Dr. Chapman has been a marriage counselor for 30 years. He's, uh, he's written this this book that sold millions of copies, the gist of the book being that we all receive love in a different way. Okay, we all have a different love language. And so if you want to know how to communicate love to somebody else, you better learn that person's love language or they're not going to get it. And he outlines, he identifies five kinds of love language. There are words of affirmation, how some of us are wired. It says, I love you. When we hear words of affirmation, it's quality time together. It's getting gifts. It's acts of service. And it's physical touch. Now, the first time I read Dr. Chapman's book, I thought to myself, gosh, I need all of that. I'm just love starved. <laughs> but, you know, if it sounds cheesy to you, I got to tell you, it works. You know, I found it true in my marriage in the early days of being married to Sue. Uh, when I wanted to say, I, I love you, I would buy her a gift. I'd get her roses, I'd take her out to a nice restaurant, spend some money on her. And I quickly discovered getting gifts is not her love language. Her love language is acts of service. So giving her a bouquet of roses doesn't say, I love you, quite like washing the dishes or changing the oil in her car. Or hanging that jewelry rack she wants me to hang next to her, her dresser. So, so all, all of the other ways I could say I love you don't communicate. One act of service says volumes. And, and to be honest with you, I wish it weren't so, because it's far easier to buy your wife flowers than it is to vacuum the house. Think about it. Yeah. So where am I going with this? God has a love language. Now, God's love language is not any of the five that... Dr. Chapman identifies, God's love language is obedience. If you want to say, I love you to God, then obey him. Now, I want to, I want to do another flyby, same verses that we looked at a moment ago that speak of obedience, which is the central theme of the chapter. I want you to see how love is spoken of in conjunction with obedience. So verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, 
keep my commands. So circle the word love. Drop down to verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who, say it together, loves me. Go down to verse 23. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Verse 24. Anyone who does not love me, circle love again, will not obey my teaching. Drop down to the last verse. Verse 31, second half, I love the Father, circle love, and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. You see, you see the close connection between loving Jesus and obeying Jesus? Uh, one Bible scholar says that the link between love for Christ and obedience to Christ is so strong in this passage that obedience is almost the definition of love. Obedience almost becomes the definition for love. Now, I, th I think that, that the Apostle John would agree with this Bible scholar, not only because of what he writes in this gospel biography of Jesus, but later on in the New Testament, John writes a cluster of three short epistles, letters. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, we read, This is love for God. What's love for God? To keep his commands. This is love for God to keep his commands. Obedience becomes the definition of love. If we want to show God that we love him, then we need, we need to obey his commands. In fact, let me just say, you know, when I stand at the crossroads in my life on any given day, and I've got a choice between obedience and disobedience, and you know what I'm talking about. Far too often, I make the choice based upon what will keep me out of trouble. See, if I, I obey God, I'll stay out of trouble, and if I disobey God, I know I'm going to get in deep weeds. Jesus says, there, you know, there's a, there's a whole other motivation here to consider. Do you love me? Because as you face the choice between obedience and disobedience, obedience will say, I love you. Disobedience will say, I really don't love you. Now, all of this emphasis on obedience presupposes something, doesn't it? presupposes that we know God's commands. We, we can't obey God's commands if we don't know what they are. Which is why Jesus says, go back to the text, verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Whoever has my... You have to have his commands in hand in order to obey them. A few years ago, I took my family on a, a vacation out to Cape Cod and... Uh, a couple of my kids were already married by then, grown kids. So I called a buddy of mine ahead of time, a retired banker out there, wealthy man. He owns a house on the Cape, and I said, Hey, Peter, I'm looking for a house to rent something near, near to the beach. You got any recommendations? And he said, Well, I'll tell you what I, I'll do. You know, my wife and I, we have a house up in Maine as well. We'll just move out, go up to Maine. You could have our house on the Cape. I said, I could do that. And so we moved into his house on the Cape, gorgeous house with a, a pool, great big pool, and a home theater, and a view of the ocean in the distance. And when we, when we moved in, I saw on the countertop a, a piece of legal paper, and on it were some basic ground rules, some things, some chores that he'd like us to do while we're taking care of his home. Now, just for the sake of analogy here, imagine that I take that piece of paper without looking at it, and I slip it into a drawer. Now, Peter calls me in the middle of the week, and he says, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Is the house okay? Oh, the house is fantastic. You taking care of it? Oh, yeah. It hasn't burned down yet. 
Is that it? I've kept it from burning down. That's all that's expected of me? See, if I pull open the drawer and I take out the sheet of paper, what I'll read is that I'm supposed to be collecting the mail and I'm supposed to be watering the plants and I'm supposed to be vacuuming the pool periodically and at the end of the week, I'm to throw the linens and the towels into the washer and remake the beds. I can't do what Peter wants me to do if if I don't know what his instructions are. You know, at the beginning of 2015, I challenged you to read the Bible every day. Start reading the Bible, not not just to prepare your community group lesson, if you do that one or two days a week, but every day, systematically be reading your way through the Bible. And I even gave you a schedule, Scripture Union, a ministry that's worldwide, all around the world. People are following their, their Bible reading schedule that will take you through the entire Bible once every five years. And we said, you know, we got hard copies of this schedule. It's available at the Resource Center of any of our four campuses. Or you could go online to our website, go to Resources, and you could download it. It could become a phone app so every day you can read God's Word. You can't obey God if you don't know what He says. So how are you doing with the reading? Okay, some of us may say, well, I meant to get started, but I haven't started yet. Or I got going for a while and I was cooking through about the third week in January, but then it's kind of tapered off. Or I meant to read six or seven days a week and I'm reading one or two days. The point of what I'm saying here is not not to guilt trip you, it's to motivate you. Say, if you want to say, I love you to God, you got to obey him. And you can't obey him if you don't, don't know what he says. That's why it's music to God's ears when he hears from his people, God, I love your word. Psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. So if you want to say, I love you to God, here's the way to say it. Okay? It's not by singing worship songs at the top of your lungs. It's not by putting a big fat check in the offering bag when it goes by. It's not by serving on the traffic team when the weather's below zero. Although all those are good things to do. If you want to say, I love you to God, here's how you do it. You obey him. You get into his word, you find what he's asking you to do, and you begin to do it. You get it? Good. Number two, here's the second truth about obedience. Obedience is the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, obedience is the work of the Holy Spirit. Got to tell you an embarrassing story on myself here. Uh, My wife has been gone for the last several weeks. She's out on the West Coast in the Portland area uh, because my daughter gave birth by C-section to a grandbaby, a grandson, my first grandson, a couple of weeks ago. You want to see his picture? Of course you do. Yeah, there he is, little Cal. What a good-looking dude. And so she's been gone for a few weeks, and I've been using that time to connect with friends. Yeah, calling up buddies, you want to do coffee, you want to do a meal together. Yeah, my wife's gone, so we'll just hang out. So oh, about a week and a half ago, I'm texting back and forth in the, in the middle of the week with a buddy of mine trying to come up with a time for us to connect. And so finally, I, I say to him, hey, dude, you come to the Saturday night service in, in St. Charles? Why don't we just grab a bite afterwards? We go out to dinner. I hope your wife doesn't mind if we leave her out and she goes home, but let's do it. And I texted it. I sent it. And then I looked at the calendar and saw I was talking about the Saturday, Valentine's Day. 
I had just invited my buddy to go out with me on Valentine's Day and leave his wife at home. No wonder he didn't text back for a few days. Yeah, Pastor Jim are good buds, but this is too much. Yeah. What could I say? Sue was gone. I was desperately lonely. <laughs> Jesus' disciples were desperately lonely. He could see that on their faces. Their hearts were troubled, the text says several times. Why? Because he'd been talking about leaving them. Jesus is going to leave. They're going to be without Jesus. And so he picks up on their troubled hearts and he seeks to assure them, I'm going to send you a new best friend. He's going to be with you every day, Valentine's Day included. And th this new best friend is the third person of the Trinity. I mean, God exists in three persons. He's one God, but the Bible teaches he exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. We sang about the Trinity in our time of worship today. God the Father sent his Son into the world to rescue us. We were dead, the Bible says, in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead, destined for an eternity apart from a holy God. Death, spiritual death. Jesus came to rescue us from death by dying the death we deserve on the cross. Taking the penalty that we should have paid. And now he offers to all who will surrender their lives to him, he offers forgiveness. He offers new life. He offers eternal life. He offers, get this, as a signing bonus, he offers the Holy Spirit. The minute you surrender your life to him, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live on the inside. And in this last supper discourse, this teaching of his disciples on the night that he would later be betrayed and the next day crucified, Jesus takes the time to teach them about the Holy Spirit. In fact, there are five passages within these four chapters that deal with the Holy Spirit. Two of those passages are in today's text, the second half of John 14. So let's see what they have to say about the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. And Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit here another advocate. What does Jesus mean, another, another advocate? Well, God the Father has already sent one advocate, Jesus. So the Holy Spirit, who would be Jesus' replacement, was another advocate. He'd be an advocate just like Jesus had been their advocate. What does advocate mean? Well, the Greek verb from which it comes is the word parakaleo. Say parakaleo. Parakaleo. Right. And it, it means literally to call alongside, to encourage or exhort. Now, you might want to jot down that definition because it's, it's really important and it will help you understand the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. To call alongside, to encourage or exhort. And, and, and different Bible versions... English versions translate parakaleo differently in this passage. The old King James says the role of the Holy Spirit, the Father will give you another comforter. That's how it translates parakaleo. One Bible scholar I read said, yeah, it's not a great word because when I see comforter, I think of the quilt my grandmother made me. You know, or maybe you think of a mourner at a funeral, a comforter. Yeah, not the greatest word. 
Another Bible translation puts it companion. The Father will give you another companion. That's the Holy Spirit. But, you know, when you stop to think about it, that captures the first half of the definition to be called alongside. But it doesn't say anything about that encourage, exhort part of his role. Another Bible translation puts it as helper. The Father will give you another helper. But when I think of helper, I think of like an errand boy who will do what you want him to do. That's not the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Another translation puts it as counselor. And now we're getting closer to the truth about parakaleo. Because a counselor you know, gives you wisdom, gives you insight. But if you, when you think of a counselor, you think of a camp counselor or a marriage counselor, a therapist. That's yeah, too narrow. A picture of the Holy Spirit. So I like the NIV's translation. It's the version that I preach from at Christ Community Church. The Father will give you another advocate. The word advocate is used because the original parakaleo was sometimes used in ancient Greek literature to explain the activity of a lawyer, an attorney, a legal counselor. So, so the Holy Spirit, who is sent to Christ followers as a replacement for Jesus, is like an ever-present, super-savvy lawyer. I mean, sometimes the Holy Spirit, he's going to come alongside of you and, and assure you everything's okay. Don't worry, we're in control here. Sometimes he's going to encourage you. Sometimes he's going to counsel you, say, well, do this or don't do that. Sometimes he's going to warn you, if you continue on this path, it's going to be disastrous. Don't go there. All of this is captured by that title, Advocate. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. But that's not the only title that Jesus gives him in the verses that we've read today. Look at the very next verse. We've been looking at verse 16. The next verse, verse 17, begins with another title for the Spirit of God. Jesus refers to him as the Spirit of, call it out, truth. The Holy Spirit's job is to lead us, to guide us into God's truth. Now, how does he do that? Let me explain a simple four-step process by which the Holy Spirit will guide you into truth. When you need to know, where do I go? What do I do? Okay, here's how he guides you. Step number one, something he's done in the past. He spoke God's truth through the Bible's original writers. Some of you know the Bible's not one book. The Bible's actually 66 books combined into one, written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents. And yet in the life of every one of those authors, the Holy Spirit was at work so that what they put down on paper is exactly what God wanted said. This is what Peter says about what we call the inspiration process. In 2 Peter 1 verse 21, he says, the original Bible writers spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to know more about this process, well, how did it work? And you know, how did God protect what they'd written from getting corrupted with errors over time as it was copied and copies were made of the copies and copies and copies and copies? You know, how did the church finally decide which 66 books ought to be in here, inspired by God, and which books were not inspired by God so they kept them out of the Bible? How did they make that decision? If you want to know more about that, I cover all that in a really short book called Foundation. It's part of the Bible Savvy series that I, I came out with a year ago. 
So pick that up, read it if you want to know more about the inspiration process. Here's the first truth I want to tell you, though, about the way the Holy Spirit guides us into truth, and that is he inspired the writers of the Bible to write down exactly what God wanted said. Now, here's the second step in the process. He then enables us to understand and apply God's truth as we read it in the Bible. So the original writers wrote what God wanted said. Now you pick it up and you begin to read it. This is what Paul says about that process in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 11 to 13. Paul says, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, capital S. But we have received, he's talking about Christ followers, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. In other words, God's Word. Paul continues. He says, this is what we speak, we apostles, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. You hear what Paul's saying here? If if you don't connect with the Bible, okay, you pick it up and you say, oh, this is a boring book. Never get much out of it. Paul would say, well, it's simple. You don't have the Holy Spirit on the inside because the Holy Spirit's job is when you pick up the Bible is to help you understand what you read and apply it to your life. Now, now Jesus, go back to John 14. He too distinguishes between people who've got the Spirit and people who don't have the Spirit. Look at verse 17. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus is speaking of a day when he'll return to heaven and send the Spirit, and the Spirit will come to live inside his followers as their personal tutor, helping them understand and apply God's word. Jesus says people in the world, by and large, they don't get the Holy Spirit. Why not? Look at the verse. He says because they can't see him. See, we we live in a world where people say, if if I can't see it, I'm not going to believe it. We have this rationalistic bent. We don't believe in an unseen world. I was watching a movie this past week, Woody Allen's latest movie now out on DVD, Magic in the Moonlight. It's set in the 1920s, and the, uh, the star is Colin Firth. And he plays the role of this famous illusionist, this magician. He's very rationalistically inclined, and so a friend recruits him to help debunk a young woman who claims to be a mystic, a spiritist, a medium. And so Colin Firth, he's eager to do this because he knows there's nothing out there except what you can see with the naked eye. If you can't see it, it doesn't exist. There is no reality that you can't see. You know, Woody Allen really messes with your head. It's a fun movie to see because you realize he's asking, Woody Allen is asking the question, is there an unseen reality or not? I want to tell you the world says no. I mean, if you don't believe me, you, you go to school tomorrow, you go to work tomorrow, and you start announcing that you've got this heavenly friend who lives on the inside whom you can't see called the Holy Spirit. You see how they respond to you. Oh, you got an imaginary friend. <laughs> but if you surrendered your life to Christ, you know. You know that the Holy Spirit of God has come to live on the inside. And one of the ways you know it is when you pick up the Bible and read it, it's like totally different than before you surrendered your life to Christ. 
I'm not saying you understand every single thing you read, but it's dramatically different. It speaks to you. Things seem to jump off the page, right? This is the job of the Holy Spirit who's been given to guide you into truth. Now, here's the third thing he does. Number three, he then reminds you of God's truth that you've previously read in the Bible. So you read it, you read it, you read it, and then you get into situations where, where, you know, you need some truth, you need some guidance. And it's the Holy Spirit who calls to mind principles that you've read in God's Word. This is what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. Drop down to verse 25. He says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, listen, and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Will remind you. Friends, when Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit is going to remind them of everything he's taught them, there's a huge assumption being made here. What's the assumption? The the assumption is the Holy, Holy Spirit can't remind us of truth that we've never been taught. What does this mean for us today? It means that if we, listen, if we want the Holy Spirit to call to our minds in certain situations, truths that will comfort us or encourage us or give us direction or warn us, then we got to put those truths in our heads in the first place. we got to become readers of God's book, as we said earlier. Then the Holy Spirit has something to work with. Let me use a non-Bible analogy here, because I think it will help you get this. When I became an avid Christ follower as a college student, you know, I was taught that I should pray about everything. Okay, this was new to me, praying about everything. So one of the things I prayed about was whenever I sat down to a test in a class. Now, that's not saying a whole lot, because even unbelievers pray before tests, right? Okay, but, but let's suppose, for the sake uh, of this analogy... Let's suppose that I hadn't studied, I hadn't cracked the history textbook. Now I'm sitting down to take a history test and I pray, Holy Spirit, call to my mind all the stuff in that history textbook. You know what I get? I get nothing. I get nothing. But let's say I've studied the book, I've done my homework, and now now I come, the tests are being passed out, and I bow my head and, and I pray, Holy Spirit, would you please call to mind the things I filed away there? You you know what I discovered? He gives me clarity. He gives me a recollection of what I've learned. You you see where I'm going with this analogy? The Holy Spirit will guide you into God's truth, but he does it primarily by reminding you of principles you've learned, you've studied in God's book. If you haven't socked anything away, the Holy Spirit's got precious little to work with. I, I don't want you to feel here by the way I'm saying this, The Holy Spirit's promptings are always in the form of a chapter and verse flashing on the screen of your imagination. When I'm in a situation where I'm calling out to God's Spirit, please guide me, guide me into truth, lead me, direct me, prompt me. And he does. I sense the direction he wants me to go. I can guarantee whatever it is he says in that moment resonates fully with something I've read and I've studied and I've learned from God's book. Number four, step four, 
So the Spirit of God, how does he guide you into truth? Well, the first thing he does is he commits God's truth to paper through its, the Bible's original writers. Then secondly, he comes to be your personal tutor when you surrender to Christ. So when you pick up the book, it makes sense. And then thirdly, the third thing he does, as I, I just said, was to remind you of those things you've read, read in the Bible when you need them. And then fourthly, he empowers us to live out God's truth. And this brings us back to the original point I made about obedience. God wants us to obey the truth. But friends, here's the problem. You know, even when we've read the Bible and we know God's truth, it's another matter entirely to live it out, right? I mean, you can know God's truth and just sense a lack of willpower, a lack of per perseverance to do the truth. And I want to tell you, this is why the Holy Spirit is so necessary. See, in Old Testament times, God's people were notoriously disobedient. In fact, if you've been following the Scripture Union Bible reading schedule, you've been reading in Jeremiah, how many times does the prophet say to God's people, you don't listen, you don't listen to God, you don't obey, you, you know the truth, but you don't do the truth. That's because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And once Jesus came and he sends the gift of the Spirit to those who surrender to him, the Spirit comes to live on the inside, not only making clear God's truth, but helping us, giving us the willpower and the strength to do it. This is what had been prophesied through people like Ezekiel. Ezekiel writes, this is Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, one of my favorite scripture passages. God says through Ezekiel, hundreds of years before Jesus, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, capital S, in you. Now listen. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. When God's spirit comes to live on the inside, he takes our heart of stone that's so often resistant to obeying God. And he gives us a, a heart that's responsive. He gives us the strength to do his will, to keep his laws. Now, someone has said that following Christ is not difficult. It's impossible. They're absolutely right. If, if you try to follow Christ, if you try to obey God, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to fall flat on your face. You know, I can't say it enough to those of you who are new to Christ Community Church. If you walk out of here saying, oh, that was a good truth. I need to obey that. But you try to do it in your own flesh, in your own strength. Good luck. If, if you try to be more generous or you try to speak kindly to your spouse or you try to break free from an alcohol or pornography addiction or you try to forgive people who insult you or you try to do anything we teach around here without the power of the Holy Spirit... It's not going to work. You know, you're going to find yourself saying, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, verses 18 and 19, he says, I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. I'll never forget the first time I read that in Romans 7. I'm like, the dude's reading my mail. I mean, this is exactly how I feel sometimes. I say, this is what I want to do, and I end up not doing it. And I say, this is what I don't want to do, God, and that's what I end up doing. So what's going on in Romans 7? Tell you what's going on in Romans 7. Paul's setting up Romans 8. Because in Romans 8, he turns a corner, 
After describing a life lived apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, he gets to Romans 8, and it's all about the Holy Spirit. He can't say it enough. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God. See, you see, the miserable failures that we are apart from the Holy Spirit that's remedied when we, we begin to live by his power. Obedience, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Third and finally, Obedience is the condition of closeness. The condition. Now, forgive me for using a lame anecdote here. It's been around for years. You, you've probably heard it a hundred times, but it works well. Okay, this middle-aged couple, they're standing at the front window of their house, and they're watching as their teenage daughter uh, goes on a, a date with her boyfriend. And she gets into his car, and she, she moves over as close as she can possibly get, buckles in in the middle seat. So she's just about sitting on top of the guy. Now, I say it's dated because there are no bench seats anymore, right? So work with me, all right? So as they drive off close together, the wife turns to her husband and she says, remember when we used to drive that close? And what's the husband's reply? He looks at her and says, I never moved. I never moved. Friends, when it comes to a relationship with God, he never moves. Now, when we neglect obedience, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, when we fall into this awful pattern of disobedience, when we just neglect little paths of obedience that God wants us to take, we get further and further, the drift, we move away. We lose a sense of his closeness. The opposite is also true. You obey God in the smallest ways. You begin to love his word and you read it daily saying, what is it you want me to do? How can I walk in obedience? How can I say I love you by obeying you? And what you'll discover is you'll move closer and closer and closer to God. And God will start showing up in your life. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Do you know somebody in whose life God's always showing up? It just makes you crazy. Because you well, what do they got here? You know, they've always got a story to tell about some answer to prayer or somebody they've introduced to Christ or they go through tough times and there's this smile on their face like they're weathering it just fine. And God's so real to them. I guarantee you it's got something to do with obedience in their lives. Because the more you obey, the closer you get. Let me take you back to the text and show you this. In this passage that hammers home obedience. Listen to what it also says, a repeating idea. A second repeating idea is that of closeness. Pick it up at verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is closeness. Now, Bible scholars aren't sure. Is Jesus referring here to after his resurrection? So he'll leave them. He'll die on the cross. But he's coming back. I will come back after my resurrection. Or is he talking about after he ascends to heaven and sends the Spirit and comes back in the person of the Spirit? Which is it? And the answer is probably both. Because <laughs> he, he can't come back in the person of the Spirit unless he's risen from the dead in the first place. The important thing to see is, I will come to you. Verse 19, but before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live, and on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I mean, this is just closeness. You can't get any closer than I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. 
Drop down to verse 22. One of Jesus' disciples asks, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Just want to draw, draw out the point here that obedient Christ followers are going to see Jesus. He's going to show up in their lives. You've been saying, well, it doesn't happen to me. And Jesus would say, try obedience. Go down to verse 23. Verse 23, he replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And if you obey me, here's what's going to transpire. My father will love them. We will come to them and make our home with them. If you want to sense that God is at home in your life, filling up every nook and cranny, try obedience. One more verse. Go down to verse 27. This verse doesn't specifically mention the closeness of Christ, but it talks about peace and the peace that it talks about is when a person experiences the presence of Christ fully in their lives. Is this what you want? Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Some of you need the peace of God in your life today. There, there's stuff going on that's rattling you, that's confusing you, that's making you distraught. Jesus says, I want you to know my peace, but let me tell you how you get it. Let me tell you how you get the, the fullness of my presence in your life. It's when you obey me. Okay, obedience is the evidence of our love for God. If you want to say I love you to God, try obeying him. Find out what his word says and do it. Obedience is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who will make the Bible come alive to you, help you to apply it give you the strength to put it into practice. And obedience is the condition for closeness. The more you obey God, the more he'll show up in your life. You'll start seeing God do extraordinary things. Now in just a moment, I'm going to close in prayer, and the worship teams are going to come out. And they're going to lead us in a song about the presence of God, the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And as we sing together, we're going to collect our gifts Bringing our gifts to God is a wonderful way to exercise obedience. It's something he commands us to do, to demonstrate that he owns everything he's given us. And he's asking for a return on that. And when we do that, we're obedient to him. We say, I love you. And I'd also like to suggest one other thing before I close in prayer. Probably the biggest step of obedience you'll take early on in your Christian life is baptism. In fact, if you balk at the notion of getting baptized, you know, all those little acts of obedience that God wants you to do, they're going to be hard. But if you'll break the ice, if you'll say, no, I'm taking the big step, I'm taking the plunge, I'm going to get baptized, you'll find that you set yourself on a trajectory of obeying God, of walking in obedience to Christ. So I would encourage you, March 14 and 15 is our next baptism at our, our four campuses, and there are orientation classes, come to one of those, learn more about what it baptism signifies and take that big step of obedience. Lord God, as we bow before you, we're just grateful to know that you really want to be close to us. What an awesome thought that the God who threw the stars into the sky, the God who's created a hundred billion suns, hundred billion galaxies, is a God who says, I will come, I will show up in your life, I will make my home with you if you'll obey me. Thank you for that invitation. Help us to see obedience not as something 
that is cumbersome, but is something that gives us an opportunity to say, I love you. We pray in your name. Amen.